Harry. It was probably 25 years ago when I was asked uh, what my favorite Bible verse was or what I thought was for my life the most significant Bible verse and if I would be willing to write a book on that one verse. I, uh, I selected a verse and I wrote just a, a little book on that one verse. The, at the time, and I think even now, the most significant verse in my life as I consider sanctification, and it's this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. You can just listen as I read. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. That sums up sanctification. As we, with the veil taken away, the veil was on in the Old Covenant, with the veil taken away, we now behold as in a glass the glory of the Lord. And that is looking at the Word of God. That is the clear revelation of the glory of the Lord. And as we behold His glory in His Word, we are being transformed into that same image from one level of glory to the next, to the next, to the next. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works to sanctify us, and He works to sanctify us through our vision of Christ, through our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. You could simplify the Christian life by saying it's just a Christ-centered life. It's a life completely preoccupied with and focused on the person of Jesus Christ. There's a lot in Christianity, a lot in evangelical Christianity that turns our focus back on us. But a, a godly life is a Christ-focused life consumed with the person of Jesus Christ and very little interest in our own selves except that in gazing on Christ, the Spirit changes us into His image from one level of glory to the next to the next. That's progressive sanctification. So during these uh, messages this week, I want to help you focus on Christ, maybe in ways you haven't done that before. And we sung about our Lord. We sung about His death, sung about His cross, the, significant of the uh, significance of the salvation He provided for us there. I want to approach that perhaps in a little different way. I want to talk about the cross without talking about the cross from our perspective or even from the, the texts of Scripture that define it. I want to talk about the cross from the vantage point of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem and He took the twelve disciples aside by themselves on the way and as they were approaching Jerusalem for the last time, where he would give his life. He said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. The Lord was well aware of what was coming in the crucifixion, he was omniscient. He understood everything that was going to happen to him. A lot of it had been laid out in Old Testament prophecies, and he had even declared specifics such as the things that he quotes there in Matthew 20. He knew what was coming. He knew every detail of what was coming with his omniscience, 
And so there's a sense in which he had, he had endured the agonies before the agonies ever even arrived and perhaps endured them uh, on a daily basis, if not even more often than that. But as he drew near to the cross, as he became closer and closer to the horrors of that event, it was really not the physical elements of it that were most distressing to him. The betrayal by Judas, that's a horror. To be betrayed in the house of your friends, to be kissed by a disciple, a kiss of betrayal. The false arrest, the corrupt judges, the illegal trial, the false witnesses, the scourging, the spitting, the hitting, the slapping, the mocking, the carrying of the cross, the pounding of the nails into his hands, the pounding of the nails into his feet, the crushing of a corn of a crown of thorns on his head, the actual crucifixion when he was dropped into a socket which ripped and tore his flesh, and then he had to push himself up on the wounds in his feet in order to breathe. That was not on his mind. As horrific as those things were, those were not on his mind. And we know what was on his mind from one place in Scripture, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, before you rush to a portion of Scripture, our Lord's prayer in the garden as He anticipates the cross is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So I've taken those four Gospels and I've blended them together to give one narrative. And I'll read you the narrative of what our Lord was thinking in the garden the night before His crucifixion. Listen carefully. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. He went a little farther, being withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down on the ground and fell on his face and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to Peter, What? Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch with me one hour? Why do you sleep? Rise, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went and prayed and spoke the same word, saying, Oh, Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know 
what to answer him. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so the scene in the garden ended. Not a word about spitting, mocking. Not a word about physical suffering. Not a word about nails, thorns, lashings. Not a word. That's not on his mind. That's not what preoccupied him. That tends to be what preoccupies us as we think about the crucifixion. That was not on his mind at all. And think about it. The Garden of Gethsemane was not a new place to him. It was a very familiar place. A place for him of rest. A place for him of quiet. A place where he could retreat from the crowds. A place of solitude. Often a place of prayer. And always when he was there, he was in communion with his Father. It was a garden of sweet fellowship. It was a garden of meditation on heavenly things. It was a garden of contemplating holy realities. It was a sweet garden of fellowship with God and sometimes with the disciples. But at this point, it is a torture chamber. With the actual exception of separation from the Father at His cross in the three hours of darkness, at the end of which He cried, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? With the exception of those three hours in which He bore the punishment, the wrath of God for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe through all of human history, all gather together and placed on Him in the form of wrath in a three-hour period, with the exception of that incomprehensible suffering. This garden experience is the most horrible experience he has ever had, ever had. It is the most awful place in Scripture. In some ways, it's more awful than Calvary, with the exception of the three hours of actual fury from heaven. But what is so profound about what I read you is this. The garden experience gives us our Lord's view of the cross. It gives us our Lord's view of the cross. We approach the scene necessarily with deep reverence to consider what Hugh Martin called our Lord's mysterious sorrow. Now we know from Isaiah 53.3 that He was to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we know that that was basically a lifelong reality for Him. His life was filled with sorrow and grief. But here, prior to the cross, is the pinnacle, the unparalleled pinnacle of sorrow and 
and grief. There is actually here, in reality, a war raging in the holy soul of the Son of God. It's a battle. It's a battle with the wrath of God headed straight toward Him. He wasn't thinking about the physical suffering. He was thinking about the fury of His Father. Sadly, He had always been a man of sorrows. He'd always been acquainted with grief. But we don't see that very often in His life. In fact, it's pretty rare. At the grave of Lazarus, He wept. And over the city of Jerusalem, He wept. Just brief mentions, and essentially the only times we see Him weep. He doesn't share His sorrows with the disciples. He doesn't have anything to say about them. He bears His sorrows all through His life in secret. But now in the garden, He can conceal His sorrow no longer. This is more than His holy soul can contain. And so He needs, for the first time in His life, comfort from somebody else. And He takes Peter, James, and John and says, come and pray with Me. This is profound. This is the holy humanity of Jesus at the highest point of suffering. He suffers so profoundly that He doesn't want to be alone. And also, He lets us in on that suffering for the first time. He has suffered His whole life. He has suffered rejection, hatred, hostility His whole life. But for the first time, He opens His holy soul and lets us see His greatest pain. He shares it with His disciples and He shares it with us. His sorrow had reached the ultimate level. The cup of wrath the Father was bringing Him to drink was near. This was, as Galatians 3.13 describes it, the curse of God. The curse of God was coming at him with full fury. The sword of the Lord's vengeance, penal desertion and penal destruction from the Father was coming in a few hours. In this dark anguish, in the face of his Father's fury, we see the Son of God in deep, profound agony. But we also see His glory. And when I look at this, even having said all that, and with you this morning, I want you to see the glory in the garden. There is glory in this scene, as there always is. No matter where you gaze on Christ, you behold His glory. Even here, you see His glory. In the dark anguish, in the face of His Father's fury, His glory shines forth. While it is 
all darkness and ugliness, there is still the manifestation of the all-glorious Son of God. Even at His worst, even at His lowest, He is full glory on display. How do we see that glory? Let me give you several things to think about. First, we see sorrow, but we see holy sorrow. We see holy sorrow. He says, as I read you, my soul is sorrowful and deeply distressed. The sorrow of the garden is produced, as, as I said, not by the anticipation of the physical suffering, but by the anticipation of the spiritual suffering, the fury of God unleashed on him. It is a powerful sorrow. In fact, this sorrow, anticipating the curse of God, the wrath of God, the fury of God, literally fury meeting out final judgment on incomprehensible sins committed throughout all of redemptive history. This is a sorrow that is so powerful, it is a deadly sorrow. It is enough to kill him, he says. It comes not from drinking the cup of wrath, but from anticipating it. Nothing could be more horrifying to his holy soul. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. This is enough to kill me. He knelt on the ground, fell on his face, and prayed three times. If it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. And he said, Abba, Father, an endearing term, Papa, all things are possible for you. He actually said, take this cup away from me. The exercise of his own soul was so exhausting, so intense, that he sweat blood as his capillaries began to disintegrate under the pressure of anticipating what was to come. Isaiah 51 talks about a cup of God's anger. Jeremiah 25 talks about a cup of wrath. And you might not know exactly all that that means until you get here and here you see it. This is the most full cup of God's fury ever unleashed. It is not just the fury of God against a sinner or a group of sinners. It is the fury of God against all sinners whose judgment He will bear at the cross. Could He have had true sinless humanity with a body that was perfectly pure could he have had a sinless, reasonable soul and said, Father, 
take this cup away from me three times? Doesn't that seem like there's something missing? Doesn't that seem like there's some unwillingness in his heart to be obedient? Isn't this a flaw in his perfection? No. In fact, it would be a flaw in his perfection if he did not say that. To desire exemption from the wrath of God is the reasonable dictate of his holy nature. Even on the cross when he says, My God, my God, why? The why rises out of his holiness. To have perfect knowledge of his Father's wrath, perfect knowledge and awareness of his own sinless purity, and not to desire to escape the judgment of his Father would bring his holiness into question. And what was the cup? It was the imputation of the guilt of all who would ever believe onto Him, and then the satisfaction of divine justice wrought by punishing Him with endless hells in three hours. To be punished as the most guilty sinner, as if he had personally committed every sin ever committed by every person who will ever believe in human history, was so horrific that his holy nature sought to escape it. This is the cup of the hour of darkness. So, this is holy sorrow. This is holy sorrow. This isn't I feel sorry for myself. This is I can't, I can't comprehend as the Holy Son of God bearing the judgment of this massive load of sin. Sin is unknown to Him. Guilt is unknown to Him. He is sorrowful over the anticipation of being punished for sins he did not, could not, would not commit. His sorrow is revulsion. The revulsion of one who is pure and righteous. It is holy sorrow. And in that you see the glory. His glory is also seen in holy faith. In holy faith. He also says this, If it is your will, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. He's expressed this incomprehensible holy sorrow, the horrors of which are beyond imagination. But immediately after that, he says, Nevertheless, your will be done. I will trust you, Father, for this. He could have used the divine and infinite powers that he possessed to end the torture, to end the profound humiliation. He could have taken what he deserved and uh, not what he did not deserve. He had the power to end the whole thing. 
He could have called legions of angels to defend Him. But in the end, He exercised holy faith. And you remember how that scene ended? He said, let's go. The betrayer is here. Listen to what He said in John 10.18. No one has taken my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. In spite of the holy sorrow, there was perfectly holy faith in the purpose of the Father to which He had originally agreed and in which He and the Father were in covenant. In the 18th chapter of John, there's another verse that speaks to this. Verse 11, Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. This was at the moment of His arrest. Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given Me, shall I not drink it? Shall I not drink it? As horrible as his sorrow was, so glorious was his faith. In John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus answered, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who loses or hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. He understood that to bring life, he had to die. His will is one with the Father. This is holy faith. When you have to trust God, in the most desperate, horrific, incomprehensible moment. That is the epitome of faith. And here it's on display. Holy faith. The devil had said to him, look, if you're the Son of God, you don't have to suffer in his temptation. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you're the Son of God, grab the satisfaction you deserve. You shouldn't be hungry. You shouldn't be suffering. You shouldn't have to die. Bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. If you're the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God. He dismissed Satan duly with Scripture because all his will desires is to do the Father's will. No matter what the cost. That's holy faith. All His glories, though concealed, though concealed in the garden, as He humbles Himself, are revealed at the same time in His holy faith. He will trust the Father. It is a garden of glory. Holy sorrow and holy faith. Thirdly, holy strength. He brought Peter, James, and John into the garden to pray with Him. 
and to pray for him. The only time in the New Testament he ever asks somebody to pray for him. He asks them to pray for him. And also to pray for themselves. So they don't fall into temptation. They didn't pray. They slept. And they fell into temptation. And they fled. He prayed three times. And three times they slept. He commanded them. Rise, watch, and pray. Lest you enter into temptation. They were indifferent. The sleep was a sign of their weakness. A sign of their weariness. A sign of their sorrow. They slept for sorrow. Whatever the reason for their sleeping, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. It was a sign of their flesh. They had no strength. And what they did was sinful. It was sinful because of its indifference. It's the sin of indifference to the obligation of friendship, the obligation of sacred love to their Savior. It's the sin of fleshly indulgence, sleep. It's the sin of squandered privilege. They could have been gathered around Him and praying with Him and for Him. It's the sin of overconfidence. You can sleep because you don't feel you need prayer. But primarily, it's the sin of failing love. They had more privileges than any human beings who had ever lived. They had been given incomparable grace. And they might have thought of Psalm 116.12, What shall I do for all the Lord's benefits to me? And if they had thought of that, maybe they would have said, The least we can do is stay awake and pray. They sleep. It is the sleep of negligence. It is the sleep of fleshly indulgence. It is the sleep of squandered privilege. It is the sleep of overconfidence. It is the sleep of lovelessness. They slept while the Lord sorrowed and struggled in prayer. But there was no weakness in His holy flesh. He was not like them. He prayed till He bled without weakness, without sleep. Again, His spirit is willing and His flesh is strong. There's no weakness, no matter how intense the sorrow, no matter how intense the supplication. This is another revelation of His glory in the garden. Holy sorrow, holy faith, and holy strength. But there's a final one. That to me is magnificently unforgettable and for most people utterly unknown. The final revelation is the most stunning and the most overlooked aspect of His glory in the garden. The Lord prayed in His sorrow, If it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prayed in that sorrow alone. He prayed so strongly that even as his physical body began to disintegrate, his prayers continued with holy strength. Then an amazing thing happened. Scripture says an angel appeared to him 
from heaven, strengthening him. And then it says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. How do you pray more earnestly than praying so intensely you're sweating blood? He prayed more earnestly. So intense was his praying that he began literally the bleeding. How did that angel, what did that angel do? That's the question. It simply says, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and he prayed all the more intensely, and it showed up in his physical body. What did the angel do? The angel didn't comfort him because there was no comfort to offer. The angel didn't bolster his divine nature because his divine nature didn't need bolstering. The angel was a creature that he himself had created. The angel didn't rescue him from wrath. The angel didn't pat him on the back and say, it's going to be okay. He didn't offer him some simplistic measure of comfort. What did the angel do? Well, ask yourself this question. What do angels do? This was not God sending an angel to speak a few words of comfort to Jesus. This is not God sending an angel to relieve His suffering. This is not God sending an angel to rescue Him uh, as some sort of uh, lesser arm of omnipotence. This is not God taking away any of the suffering. That's impossible. What did the angel do? Well, what do angels do? Listen to Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. And he goes on to talk about the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed. You are the same. Your years will not come to an end. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What did the angels do in the presence of and what do they do in the presence of the Son of God? Go back to verse 6. When He again brings the firstborn into the world, He says, And let all the angels of God worship Him. What do angels do? They worship. Who do they worship? They worship the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, of course, 
you have that. Verse 11, I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, living creatures, elders. The number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. With a loud voice, all these angelic beings were saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. What do angels do in the presence of Christ? They worship. They worship. To be clear, an angel came and worshipped Christ in the garden. In the midst of His holy sorrow, holy faith, in the midst of His suffering, an angel worshipped. It's just a magnificent scene. Though He has received the reproach of men, His nation, the hatred of sinners. He has been abused and abased in body and in soul. He is tortured in his mind by the fury of the wrath of God coming against him as a substitute for countless sinners. And at that very moment, an angel comes and does what angels do, bowed down and worshiped him in the garden. Holy worship is the fourth expression of glory. Holy worship. What was that? That was a taste of what was waiting him on the other side of the cross. When all the angels of heaven would worship him as described in Revelation 5. Holy worship by one angel sent from heaven, from God, to remind him what was beyond the cross. Worship by that angel was a taste of the glory to come on the other side of his agony. when all the angels, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands will worship Him as the slain Lamb. They will all and forever bow before Him in an eternal posture of love, adoration, and reverence. He would die he would rise, he would ascend to the throne and receive the worship of angels forever. So here in the garden, we see the glory of our blessed Savior in ways that perhaps we might have missed. His view of the cross is clear from his experience there. No matter where you see Christ, 
even in what might appear to be the most horrific situation, His glory is there. He cannot be anything but glorious. Father, we thank You for this precious gift to us, this precious gift of the Garden of Glory, this unique, one-time window into the glory of Christ in His sorrow. And we thank You that even in the loneliness, isolation, and the dread of divine wrath, He is all-glorious. And like that angel, we come to Him in the garden and we bow down and we worship Him. As we see Him in His magnificence, we desire that You, blessed Holy Spirit, would conform us to His image from one level of glory to the next. That's our prayer.